0: You would please stand and turn to Psalms 14 this morning. Psalm 14 To the chief musician a psalm of David The fool has said in his heart there is no god. They are corrupt They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you this morning. Acknowledging that you are the God of this universe. You are the God who created everything. You are the God who sustains everything. Lord, we know and understand that every breath we get comes from you. And yet, Lord, we know that there are those who do not believe that, in a sense. Lord, we just pray that as we worship here today and as we leave here and go out to live our lives. That we would glorify you and that we would be thankful to you for all that you give us. But especially for what you have given us in Christ. The salvation that we have. That we are now children. That we have been adopted into your family. We thank you and we praise you for this. May your blessings be upon The remainder of this service, Lord, may your Holy Spirit move and work in our hearts, and may we leave out of here today more like Christ than when we came in. In his name we pray, amen. You will open your Bibles to Romans 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23, uh, but I will back up a little before we get to that point. When I first started studying this, I outlined this particular section of Romans in this way. I had to... the two that we've already looked at. Roman number one was the reality of God's wrath. And number two was the revelation of God's wrath. And today we'll be looking at the righteousness of God's wrath. And God willing, at some point we will look at the results of God's wrath. As I already said, we have looked at Romans 1 and 2, and in, in or I'm sorry, at point 1 and 2. And in number one, we looked at the reality. You know, and it's a shame that there's even a question about the reality of God's wrath. But sinful human beings are prone to pick the parts of any book or any conversation that they like and then disregard the rest. And in many cases, that's what has happened to this particular doctrine. And it's even, as I said, they can do that with anything, but it's even more so when we talk about the Bible. But when we looked at Roman numeral one, the reality of God's wrath, we saw that God's wrath is real. He has exhibited his wrath in the past, such as the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in many other ways, but those are just two. He will in the future. As prophecy tells us, it's coming. But even right now, God is exhibiting his wrath. We could say that death itself is an exhibition of God's wrath against sin. And that's just one of many ways in which he is doing so. We then looked at the revelation of God's wrath, and we saw that God reveals his wrath against all those who are ungodly and unrighteous. And we talked about the ungodly has the sense of its impiety towards God, our relationship with God, and the unrighteous part of that is our relationship towards each other, Basically. So God's wrath is real. He is presently revealing it. But is God right to do so? And I know that's here. That could almost sound blasphemous. But again, there are people who either don't believe that he is a God of wrath or they just choose to ignore that part of the Bible. So hopefully today, before we're through, we will see Once again, that this is a doctrine taught in the Bible. Clearly, there shouldn't be any question, and it should not be suppressed. But let's do a little backtracking here first. Kind of back up to 14, verse 14. Up to this point, Paul opened his letter with a greeting to the Roman church or churches. He tells them he has heard of their sincere faith, that he's been praying for them, and he hopes to come see them. Then in verse 14, he says he is a debtor, or he's under obligation to everybody, the Greeks, the barbarians. What does he mean by that? Why is he under obligation? Remember who Paul was and what he was doing prior to his uh, conversion? Paul was, or at that point, he was Saul, was a prideful, Christ-hating Jew who was doing everything he could to destroy the church. He was arresting Christians. He was consenting to the death of Christians. And then suddenly on this particular day, on the Damascus Road, God knocks this prideful Jew to the ground in front of everybody, blinds him, has them lead him to a house in Damascus, and then, in a sense, God just says, Paul, you sit over there in the corner and pray until I get back with you. <laughs> How demeaning this must have been for this prideful Jew to go from the pinnacle here almost. I mean, he's got, the, he's got the ear of the religious leaders of the day to the point that they're giving him paperwork to go and lock up and do away with this sect. And now here he sits blinded waiting for instructions <laughs> from this same Jesus. And when this is all over with, God gives Saul his marching orders. He tells Saul, you're to be a light to the Gentiles. And so Saul, Paul now, has an obligation to these people. First of all, because this is the job, this is the ministry that God gave him. And so Paul says in verse 15 that he is eager to preach the gospel. In Rome. Now, Paul felt this sense of obligation to do God's work, to fulfill the ministry given to him. Have you ever felt that obligation? We as Christians have an obligation given to us by Christ, also. Many times we'll feel obligated. You know, you see these stories that go across the Internet about somebody doing this good deed for this one, and then they feel compelled to do this good deed for that one, and it just is kind of a domino effect. And we can fall into that and yet not feel the obligation to Christ to present to a lost and dying world the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are no less obligated than Paul was. (gasps) So first, Paul wants to fulfill the mission given to him by God, and he has a love for people and their souls. So in essence, what Paul is doing is fulfilling the two great commandments, right? Number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And then as we move into verses 16 and 17, Paul basically gives the message of the entire book of Romans, the gospel. This is what this book is about. This is what he's going to be presented from various angles. But he's laying out the gospel. The good news. And how this good news has the power to save. How believing this good news will save you, but only this gospel, only this good news has the power to save. There is no other good news. Now, th- this word gospel was not coined for biblical use. This, was, this word was used in Roman society. A lot of times they would come up and they would say, uh, we've got some good news, the emperor's had a son, that sort of thing. Paul is saying that the good news that he's giving has the power to save souls. And this gospel that he has is for anybody that will believe it. Paul says that in, the, in this gospel, the righteousness of or from God is revealed. There is a righteousness we need as sinners and we don't have any way of getting this righteousness without somebody paying our debt. We have no hope without help. You now, as Paul moves out of verses 16 and 17, Paul's very good at anticipating questions, and, and I, he's been preaching for a while, and so he knows some of the questions that are going to be asked. Paul knows that sinful human beings will need to know why they need the good news, why they need righteousness. We all are that way. Even in this country where we've got a church on every corner and 15 Bibles in every house. And yet when you talk to people, when you evangelize to people, they still don't understand the gospel. They still don't understand that they are lost and undone. On their way to hell... No hope, they don't, they don't see that. So Paul knows he's going to have to explain this. He, I guess basically you say he's going to have to break down their self-esteem. Put it in today's vernacular. So Paul begins to prove that every human being is sinful. He starts in uh, verse 18. And this will continue on in him making this point up until chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul's goal here is to prove that every human being is sinful. And I think as we look at this, we're going to see that he proves his point. Now, as I already said, we've looked at the reality of God's wrath and and the revelation of God's wrath, and today we're going to look at the righteousness of God's wrath. And so let's read verses 18 through 23. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. (coughs) So, is God right to be angry, to be a God of wrath, Or will there be those who have an excuse? Now, do these verses that we just read, do they tell us that there's going to be some who are going to have an excuse? There's going to be some who are going to be able to stand before God and say, Lord, I got an excuse. I didn't know. No, these verses tell us that everything we need to know is there about whether there is a God or not in creation. There is going to be no excuses. Paul says that since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, since there was a human being present, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Kind of a paradox, isn't it? His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Jesus... Remember Jesus speaking about uh, the Holy Spirit and using the analogy of the wind? We can't see the wind. It's invisible to our eyes, yet we can see what the wind does. We can see the wind, the, the trees blowing, the leaves blowing. We can hear it as it goes through those leaves. We can even see the destruction that it brings about after a tornado or a hurricane. We can see there is a God by looking at creation, folks. We can see much about his invisible attributes from the creation. If you walk outside at night or, and study the heavens, or if you go down to the library and do a little digging on astrology, can you come back after doing that and truthfully tell me that a Big Bang created that? Big Bangs create destruction, not order. I, I just I don't think that you can be a scientist and say that you are truly looking for the truth and be an evolutionist. Anyone who studies space, plants, animals, DNA, etc., if being truthful, would have to say that all of these things were created with order and purpose. One of the men who discovered DNA stated that we as scientists, and I'm quoting him here, we as scientists have to keep reminding ourselves that this evolved and was not designed for a purpose. <laughs> yeah. We as scientists, now that, (laughs) you read that and then you read that last part, it it makes you laugh. We as scientists have to keep reminding ourselves that this evolved and was not designed for a purpose. Folks, if the evidence is strong enough to keep leading you away from your predetermined beliefs, you might want to reexamine your beliefs. If I go to a crime scene and just walk in, and this happens occasionally, you just walk in and you look around and you go, oh, I know the husband did it. You can see it. I mean, I just you formulate. And it had to be the husband. But then, the interviews begin to be completed, and the coroner's report comes in, and the uh, uh, DNA analysis comes in, and it leads you in a different direction. It it points to somebody else. What should you do? You go where the evidence leads you. if you're going to be truthful, Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist, uh, at times has let his uh, theology slip out. He said, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. It, 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 it was leading him in that direction. Now, he's, he's, he's pulling back on the reins, but... It got him part of the way there. They at least give the appearance, he says. Now, that's two examples of people who I don't truly believe are looking for the truth. Now, here's an example of a scientist who was searching for the truth, and because of that, he came to understand the truth. Sir Isaac Newton wrote, and I quote, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. And he goes on and this relates to Romans 1, he says, atheism is so senseless. When I look at the solar system, I see the earth at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amounts of heat and light. This did not happen by chance. End quote. Ray Comfort has also made similar remarks. You know, he says that the sun is just far enough away It'll ripen your tomato, but it's not so close. It'll burn it up so far away that it will freeze everything. You know, we, that's what I'm saying. You look at, you study astrology, just one area, one little area. And if you're going to be truthful, you have to come away saying, something built that. I did not drive up out there this morning, and when I pull up, say, so, you know, that building evolved. It just fell together. That, that never occurred to me, and it should not occur to us when we look at God's creation either. You know, the atheists look at themselves as, or, and I use that word loosely now. But those who say they're atheists look at themselves as enlightened and highly intelligent. Really, they're spiritually insane. We have the evidence we need to know. to know that there is a God and to seek after that God. Everyone does, not just the atheists here in the United States or in Britain or wherever we have Bibles, even the native in deepest, darkest Africa. And I have an illustration here. A man named Bill Brewster, who was pastor of the First Baptist Church in Abilene, tells a story of a a young student from Nigeria named John who attended his church. Brewster asked him how he became a Christian. John answered, when I was a little boy running around in the bush country of Nigeria, I knew there was a God. He said, I would stand among the trees and look up at the skies at night and know that someone made this world. He said, I knew there was a God, but I didn't know what to call him. And then he said, one day a Southern Baptist missionary named Josephine Skaggs came to their village to teach the children how to read. And she taught him how to read the Bible. And he says, there I discovered the name of the God who had revealed himself to me through the trees and the stars. So a child in the jungles in Nigeria can figure this out, and yet somebody like Richard Dawkins cannot. It's not that they cannot, folks. It's that they won't. It's not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. RC Sproul says that atheism has nothing to do with man's supposed ignorance of God since all people know God according to Romans 1 but rather with mankind's dislike of him people who do not know God because or people do not know God because they do not want to know God Sproul goes on to say the New Testament maintains that unbelief is generated not so much by intellectual causes as by moral and psychological ones The problem is not that there is insufficient evidence to convince rational beings that there is a God, but that rational beings have a natural antipathy to the being of God. In a word, the nature of God, at least the Christian God, is repugnant to man and is not the focus or desire or wish projection. Man's desire is not that Yahweh exists, but that he doesn't. I remember thinking that very thought as a teenager, I had been to church. I had heard one of those hellfire sermons from that preacher down in DeSoto Parish. And I'm at home thinking about this later. And I remember thinking, man, it would be nice if there wasn't a God. Then I wouldn't have to deal with this. I was convicted at that point to some degree. But the Bible tells us that all are going to be without excuse. The atheists... as as they describe themselves, can scream all they want that there is no proof of God, but in the end he will be shown to be without excuse. Adrian Rogers tells of a man who owned a trucking company in the South where part of the hiring process is a lie detector test, on which one of the questions is, do you believe in God? He said they've observed that even avowed atheists who answer the question no are shown to be liars by the polygraph. Folks, it takes a deliberate act of one's will to observe the design that we see in creation and not acknowledge a designer. You hear people say, I don't have the faith to believe in evolution, and that's true. It is for me. Psalm 19, one through 3 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament... Firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I think John the Nigerian has proven that, huh? This verse right here says the heavens declare the glory of God. Just here in the daytime? No, no, 24-7 this is being done and it also says in verse 3 there is no speech, there is nowhere you can go where this is not being exhibited. The glory of God is being exhibited in this far outreaches of Siberia. Nowhere you can go. Now, people reject the truth from creation. There's another reason that God can be angry with unbelievers because he is good even to them. Acts 14, 16, and 17 says who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. As a Christian, I am convicted many times because I don't love God as much as I should. I don't glorify God as much as I should. But think about the unbeliever. God gives them every breath. He feeds them, clothes them, gives them families to love. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing only to be rejected. Now, we get some sense of how that feels. If you've ever had, you know, you you work and you save for your children and then they complain or act as if they were owed this. That doesn't feel good, does it? But don't we do God that way sometimes? And you think about the unbeliever enjoying the blessings of God for a whole lifetime and never being thankful one time. Not only is God right to be angry at unbelievers because there's ample evidence for them to believe, but also... Wouldn't this be a blemish on God's character if there was no wrath? If God was indifferent to sin, wouldn't it be a, a moral blemish on God's character? Yeah. His wrath is as much a divine perfection as his faithfulness and his power and his mercy and any other attribute. Habakkuk one thirteen says, You are a pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Would it be right if all the people who have committed murders, rapes, child molestations were not, and were not caught in this world and there was no hell, there was no wrath from God? And it happens. Hundreds and hundreds of these, just these three crimes right here are committed in the United States alone in a year and many of them go unsolved. I'm always amazed at people who want to ignore or they want to do away with God's wrath. You know, they obviously have not stopped and considered the cross lately or as they should. In the cross, you see God's love and his mercy in Christ dying for us and for our sins. But you also see God's wrath on display, don't you? God poured out his wrath on his only begotten son so that we might be saved. God could not overlook our sin and just bring us to heaven. That would not have been just, would it? The debt had to be paid. We were under God's wrath, and either we pay the debt in hell or someone has to pay the debt for us. And so if God is willing to pour out his wrath on his son so that those who believe would be saved, why would God not pour out on his wrath those who will not believe. We must preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I have seen lately Facebook and some of the blogs, that sort of thing, where John MacArthur has been catching heat over his uh, teachings on Catholicism recently, and Thank God for men like John MacArthur who will take the heat and just keep going. Um, I don't believe that John is teaching that every Catholic is lost. We can't discern. I can't walk into a Catholic church down there and discern who's saved and who's not. But I can look at what, and so can he, look at what the Catholic church teaches as far as doctrine, especially about salvation, and say, That's heresy. That does not match what's in this book. Now, let, let's remember that even though we've been taking this long look at God's wrath here, and verses 16 and 17 are still in the book of Romans. The gospel is truly good news. There is a remedy for sin and for its penalty. If you will but believe the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners and that If you'll turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. Now, I can imagine that Paul didn't like preaching wrath any more than any other preacher does. But it must be presented. All of God's truth must be presented. Just as I said before, sinful human beings need righteousness, and we don't have any, and we don't have any way of getting any. And yet in the gospel and in the cross, there is the righteousness of God and from God revealed. God is going to be righteous in that he is going to punish sin, the righteousness of God. But also there is the righteousness from God, that that righteousness imputed to me because of what Christ accomplished on that cross. Jesus Christ is the righteousness I need. we can say thanks be to God and Father that as Paul wrote in Romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now we've seen in verses 18 and 19 that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and that What can be known of God apart from Scripture is plain. Paul goes on in verse 20. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says there is a God, Now, instead of Godhead, that probably should be better translated divinity or Godhood. It signifies the sum total of uh, the divine attributes. And that his power is eternal. Paul says that both of these can be seen through God's creation to the point that no soul will have an excuse. Now, Paul has determined that mankind has everything they need to believe there is a God and they are accountable to, that they are accountable to, and they have suppressed this truth. Then in verse 21, Paul begins to tell us how suppressing this truth manifests itself in unholy living and unholy thinking. They knew God, it says. Not in a saving way. It's just, it, it's just like John the Nigerian. They know there is a God. They know there is a creator. And look what they did. Or actually what they did not do and then what they did. First, they did not glorify him as God. <clears throat> You see God being glorified in our culture today, in our schools, places of employment, bookstores, TV programs, movies? No. The very opposite is true. God's name is constantly being used as a curse word or something close to it. I I cringe every time I hear somebody on TV use that phrase, oh, my God. It just, and they seem to see just how much that they can do this. C.K. Chesterton said they can't swear properly without using the name of God. Imagine ripping off a round oath in the name of natural selection. <laughs> no, and you think about it. What do they use as an oath constantly? You know they don't use Satan as a curse word. They refuse to give glory that is due to his majestic name. They will not recognize God for who he is that sovereign, holy, righteous ruler, sustainer of this whole universe. They're spiritually insane. They became futile or vain in their thoughts and reasonings. You know, once you reject the true God, the truth about this true God, this is the only alternative here. There's nothing else left. If if we reject the truth, the only thing left is to believe something like evolution, whatever our silly little minds can conjure up. to have our foolish hearts darkened. Verse 22 always makes me think of many of our teachers and our professors in our schools and in our colleges. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. They claimed to be wise Just as Psalm 14, 1 says, but they're fools. They believe that because they have a PhD or whatever it is, they have it all figured out. But really, in reality, they're spiritually insane. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.20, he said. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Just like he did here in Romans. Those who profess to be wise. Now keep in mind the context that he was writing in 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to these Corinthian saints in one of the intellectual centers of the world at the time. And he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The famous or infamous, however you want to look at it, French philosopher Voltaire <laughs> is a tragic example of a brilliant fool. I saw several stories about him this week, and I included a couple here of counts. One of them, an aristocratic, or an aristocratic woman who was old and blind, wrote to Voltaire in the hopes that he could dispel her pessimistic view of life and offer some comfort. He replied, I think we human beings are indeed contemptible creatures. I exhort you to enjoy as much of life as you can, and that isn't much. That's a sad way of looking at life, isn't it? But that's all that's left if you have no hope. Voltaire once made a basically a description despicable description I guess you could say of our Lord Jesus Christ when he made the comment somebody was talking about Christ he said curse the wretch probably many of you have heard Voltaire was very boastful he proclaimed that within 50 years the Bible would be forgotten that Christianity would be a thing of the past he wrote I'll show how just one Frenchman can destroy it within 50 years In 20 years, Christianity would be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Uh, Now let me show you how God has a sense of humor. Ironically, some 20 years after Voltaire's death in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house for printing the Bible and other Christian literature. And then it later became the Paris headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society. The Bible is the best-selling book of all times, but an entire six-volume set of Voltaire's works were sold for 90 cents. There was a sense in which Voltaire claimed to be a believer in God, but he believed in a God of his own imagination and not the one of the Scriptures. He uh, clearly rejected the God of scriptures and even um, ridiculed the idea of life after death. Kind of like the Russian, Russian cosmonaut who went into space and said something. said, I went into space and I did not see him talking about God. Well, that may be, but I bet you if he would opened that door and stepped out into eternity, he would have met him. And so, making these boastful comments, at some point, Voltaire breathed his last breath, and that breath being a gift from God. It appears, though, that on his deathbed, Voltaire had some of his most intelligent revelations as he began to doubt his doubts. Apparently, he began to question, and this time correctly, whether there might in fact be a heaven and a hell. After all this is said and done, he was uh, indeed and in wise in one regard, because he clearly understood what his eternal address would be. Just before his death, Voltaire said, I wish I had never been born. On his deathbed, speaking to his apparently Christian physician, he said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me six months. The doctor replied, sir, you cannot have six weeks. Voltaire replied, then I shall go to hell and you'll go with me. And so almost as his last utterance, Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man, I shall go to hell, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. This was a man that the king of terrors had a grip on just prior to his death. The nurse who attended Voltaire on his deathbed said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another infidel die. Now, we loosely use that phrase atheist sometimes and in, even in regards to Volteria, I don't believe that men can be atheists in the truest sense first of all the Bible tells me that's not the case second of all for them to say that dogmatically would mean that they have all knowledge they are omniscient and we know that's not the case you know we, we read or hear about somebody like Voltaire, it ought to cause us to reflect and to think about the lost and the dying around us. We have an obligation also. You know, in Philippians it says, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It will happen. It will happen to the lost that are around us. It will happen to some of our lost family members. We we have an obligation to be giving them the gospel. We can't make them understand it, but we do have an obligation to give it to them. So these people have rejected God and now they are professing to be wise and then what do they do? In their imaginations, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the true God for an idol just as Israel did after leaving Egypt, right? Egypt was, uh, Israel was brought out of Egypt they had seen his miracles, all the things that he had done. They they had the knowledge of the true God, and yet what did they do? They exchanged that for an idol. Once people suppress the truth, you see what follows? Someone once said that when when a person rejects the true God, it's not that they will believe in nothing, but that they will believe in anything. Hence, the answer to the question, why are there so many religions? Which one? From the very start. Take it all the way back. They rejected God. Man is going to worship. It's, put, it's in us. We are going to worship something. And so what do they do? You reject the true God. You've got to worship an idol then. There's nowhere else to go. You notice that Israel, when you think about them, they didn't just do away with any and all gods. They do what you have to do. They made one that was corruptible, one that was subject to decay and destruction, unlike the true God who is incorruptible, who has always been and will always be. You know, and it seems that today's church, use that loosely also, has exchanged the God of the Bible for a God of their own imagination. They've made this exchange for one who will fulfill all their desires, who will make them feel good about themselves. But that's also idolatry, isn't it? It doesn't matter how much somebody gets up behind a pulpit and smiles and how many times they can say Jesus in a sentence if what they are saying does not match up with this book, it's false. I don't know, maybe I just have a suspicious mind because of what I do or something, but I just don't, it just amazes me to see people sitting in those you know you flip on the TV and you, there it is TV and somebody's up there preaching something that you know is not right and you, they pan the audience I know most of you are not old enough to remember this but they used to have the little dogs that sat in the back window and their little heads just went like this as the car moved and they pan the audience out there and that's what I see these people doing they're just sitting there going like this and have no clue what the Bible says just as was brought up in Sunday school this morning it doesn't matter who says it? Whether I say it, Sean says it, John MacArthur says it. Make sure it matches what's in this book. And you look at the you look at the gods that they conjure up there. This the first uh, twenty three. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things. Harry Einstein kind of calls the reader to observe the downward steps of this, as he called it, the toboggan slide of idolatry. He said, God first thought of as an idealized man. They start to make idols, well, some idealized man. Then it goes to the birds that soar in the heavens. Then to the beasts that prowl over the earth. And then finally, we're to the serpents and the other creeping things. Man does not get better apart from God, folks. He gets worse. If they, you know, any who reject the light that they have would only look at the truth and respond positively to that truth. God will reveal himself to them in a saving way, just as he did with John the Nigerian. Verse 16 is still true. From idolatry to immorality is just a short step, folks. And we're going to see that in the next section of verses when that comes. But if you look at verses 18 through 23, basically, remember Paul says back up there, God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that ungodliness, that impiety towards God. Well, that's basically what verses 18 through 23 are. And then he's going to move into verses 24 through 32, where he begins to talk about our relationship towards each other. When you, where do you go when you reject the truth, when you reject God and his ordinances, his statutes, his laws? What happens to our relationships with each other? They get worse. If a man is his own God, he can do as he pleases, fulfill his desires with no fear of having to face judgment. The pagan world is not condemned for failure to live up to a revelation they didn't have, the gospel. They, they fail in receive, receiving the revelation they do have, folks. So if somebody comes to you and asks, well, what about the innocent native in Africa? Because that's going to come up, that question. <laughs> what do you say? You just respond. There's First of all, there's no such thing. There's not an innocent human being on the face of this planet. None. Paul has already declared that in these verses right here. All are without excuse. He starts here in chapter 1, and, and I understand that there's some debate about what I'm about to tell you. I didn't see a lot, but there is some disagreement over. Most people believe that in this first section here in chapter 1 that I've been talking about, that Paul is talking about primarily Gentiles, and that in chapter 2 he will move into a discussion about the Jews. But in the end, when he gets to the end of this discussion... All will be without excuse. All will stand before the judgment. And it will be a righteous judgment. And for the unbeliever, they will face a righteous anger from the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, as Jesus said. Isaiah 5, 20 and 21 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Now, is it possible for a Christian to suppress the truth about God's revealed word also? Think so. We can walk into the sanctuary with a prideful heart, hear the best sermon ever preached on humility, and still go out that door with the same pride that we had when we came in. We came and we heard with our ears, but we didn't hear with our heart. The pastor can preach it to the best of his ability under the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have ways of justifying our own sin, do we not? One of those being, as we talked about this morning, pointing at somebody else. So, as Christians, we also need to remove whatever idols are in our own hearts. We need to go to God in prayer and ask him to search our hearts and to reveal anything that's taking precedence over our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fulfill our obligation to that lost and dying world around us by giving them the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you from the depth of our heart. First of all, for the salvation that there is in Christ, we thank you, dear God, that Verse 16 is true. We thank you that you drew us to yourself when we were rebelling against you, fighting against you, running away from you, yet you drew us, brought us to repentance and faith. We thank you and praise you for that. We pray that our lives would honor and glorify you in everything we do and say. And, Lord, we pray for a lost and dying world out there. We pray for those who, to this point, have rejected your truth. May we, as your people, fulfill our obligations, just as Paul did, to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to present the gospel at every opportunity. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us here to your house today again. We thank you for the fellowship that we can enjoy as Christians. We thank you that you brought all those uh, who went to the conference home safely. We thank you that you watched over their families while they were gone. And now we praise you and, and we just ask that you would bless our time in the fellowship groups, that you would cause us to be a people that praise. A people that prays for our leaders, a people that prays for each other. May you do a mighty work in that area of our lives, Lord. Go with us as we leave here into another week. May you present opportunities. May your spirit go before us, convicting those that we will come in contact with, making those hearts ready to hear the gospel. And may we be looking for that and uh, have the boldness and the courage to give them that gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.